Thanks for listening to What's the Big Idea, a class by J.R. Foresteros. Let me know what you think at Facebook, Twitter, or my website, jrforesteros.com. Enjoy the class. Yay! Okay, let's go ahead and get started. I want to hear some of what you had to say in your uh, in your discussion. So specifically, I asked you, we'll, we'll come back to the first couple questions later, but you know, specifically when we're thinking about reviewing, you know, I asked you to think about uh, Exodus's creation again. Uh, tell me what you guys talked about there. Again, we're trying to dig back two weeks ago and unearth everything that we talked about. So, and particularly if you did the homework, uh, in Exodus 15, 1 through 18, that song, you know, song of victory over Egypt, you heard a lot of creation language in there too. So what does it, what does it mean to say that the Exodus is a creation story? Because that's kind of where we ended last week, right? So what, what do we mean by that? Or last week, two weeks ago, whatever. Last time we met. Good. Yeah. Yeah. New law, right? New, in some ways, new God. I mean, we had that whole thing at Sinai where they made that official covenant between them and God. So there is there is a whole something being created out of you know the chaos of slavery and you know, the death in Egypt and all of that kind of stuff. And so uh, it was kind of cool to see all of the Genesis language that Exodus borrowed and pulled into the Exodus because the the Jewish people understood themselves to be created in the same way the world was created. You know, that this is what God does. God brings order out of chaos. God brings life out of death. Uh, this is fundamentally who God is. Uh, so we also then talked about the exile, right? And if, the, if, if Exodus is creation, exile is apocalypse. And what, what was that all about specifically for the Jewish people? Why was the ex? Why did, why did, why did we use the language apocalyptic, you know, to, to describe what happened to the Jewish people in the exile? This is no. That's this is way before that. This is uh, five, almost six hundred BC. So. No exile uh, when Babylon came and destroyed. Remember they uh, they kept trying to make alliances with Assyria and with Egypt and all of that and. Finally, Babylon came in and destroyed them. And yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh no 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 no. no. Exodus and exile, two two different events, um, and, and the events that in many ways frame what we call the Old Testament, right? But the, the story of the Jewish people, their creation and their destruction. Um, so yeah, it's because exactly that. It was we we call it apocalyptic because it was a culture-ending event. This was. This was a complete desolation, right? A complete destruction of, of, of anything recognizable. And so the, the Judaism that we have on the other side of the exile looks totally different from what existed before. You know, the Judaism that Jesus practiced in his day was totally different from the, from the kind of Judaism that uh, was practiced before the destruction of the first temple. Uh, in fact, you even have some uh, academics who, who call it uh, call what was going on before the exile Yahwism, after Yahweh, you know, God's name, they call it Yahwism, because it's so different, it's almost helpful to call it, just call it something else, because if you just call it all Judaism, you know, it kind of gets muddled up, and, you're, and it ends up sounding like it's the same thing, so that that's, it's distinct enough to almost warrant its own 
its own name. And, and of course, we talked about how it was very temple-centric, right? Whereas after that, when there was no temple, they had to become book-centric. And so they, they wrote down everything that we now today call our Old Testament. And they became what Jewish people are known as today, the people of the book. And that was, that was really one of the first religions that did something like that. I mean, before that, um, most other religions would have been temple-centric. And we talked about last week or last time that uh, this is – what was fascinating about that is that, that any other religion would have just been decimated by this. It would have been wiped off the face of the map. And so that what was going on in the midst of this exile was in some ways a preservation. So uh, what we're going to do tonight is talk uh, for the first little bit about Jesus and specifically how Jesus embodies both Exodus and exile in his life and in his death and resurrection. Uh, and then we're going to talk about today, which is why I asked you to, to describe yourself. And then also I, I asked you about 9-11 because it, that's probably the most recent culturally apocalyptic event in, you know, for, for us. Um, though there certainly be others, you know, we can talk about uh, uh, Pearl Harbor to a lesser degree, but certainly like the assassination of JFK was, a, you know, you talk to people like that, that was, I mean, that was something that rocked the foundations of our culture and made people question like, oh, like, you know, is anything even safe or, you know, just, uh, I, to some degree, the Challenger explosion, you know, was a big one. Uh, I was, I think I was six when that happened. And I remember we were all at school and they had it on the TV because there was a school teacher on there and, you know, everyone, everyone saw it. So, <laughs> so anyway, so, I mean, there are these sort of like mini apocalyptic events, things that rock, at least rock, if not devastate our culture. So we'll talk about some of those and then also talk about some of those personal apocalypses, because I asked you to discuss, and I heard I heard a lot of good discussion. Uh, you know, what does it mean for the world to end if the earth if it doesn't mean that the earth blows up? And some of you rightly immediately said, well, maybe world doesn't have to mean everyone's world. You know, what if it is just my world? What does it mean for my world to continue? For the things that I put trust in to become shaky, to become unreliable. So we'll we'll get there by the end. So. Uh, Again, hopefully you got to read Exodus 15 in your homework. Again, there's just lots of really fascinating creation language in there, talking about God as a warrior and God fighting against the Egyptians and you know splitting the seas and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then and then the other one that I really want to spend just a couple of moments on tonight is Lamentations chapter four. I'm assuming that most of us have not spent a good amount of time in Lamentations. <laughs> um, it's yeah, it's it's really depressing. But these are this is a series of hymns that were written in the wake of the exile. And what's what's really striking as you work through Lamentations, and it's, it's a relatively short book, it's, it's between Jeremiah and Ezekiel, so it's very short compared to them. Uh, but what's really striking about it is how, uh, how strongly the Israelites felt that in the exile they were burying the wrath of God. You know, that God was, was angry with them and was punishing them, and the exile was was their punishment, and, and that God is, they even use language like God is warring against them, and the thing, you saw some of that in Lamentations 4. So uh, we're going to come back to that uh, in, in a little bit when we get to Jesus, but I wanted you to, I wanted you to sit with that over the last couple of weeks and just feel, the, feel how Israel was processing what happened in the exile. You know, feel how they were processing um, what it meant for the world to kind of fall apart and for everything that they look to for stability to be gone. Uh, so and Leviticus is a, a great place to not, not know that, but feel it. I mean, it, it's, it's poetry. So you really do get, you really do get a, a feel of what they were um, experiencing you know, emotionally and culturally. So it's, it's, a, it's well worth reading for that alone. 
So let's talk about Jesus for a little bit. Um, we're going to move pretty quickly through Jesus's Exodus because I, I have a feeling a lot of this will be pretty more familiar to you than exile. But for instance, uh, think with me about Matthew chapter 2, which is the story of Jesus's birth in Matthew. Uh, now, uh, I'm sure most of you know that there are, are two different birth accounts. Matthew is the one with King Herod and the, the Magi. Luke is the one that has the shepherds and Angel Gabriel appearing to Mary and all that kind of stuff. So uh, in the Matthew one, Jesus is very intentionally portrayed as the new Moses. You know, he's he's born under a hostile king, right? Um, the king set out to kill them. There's this, this slaughtering of the infants. And then both of the boys, of course, escape. Moses escapes thanks to his mother hiding in him in the, in the river and being discovered by, by Pharaoh's daughter. Jesus escapes because Joseph is warned in a dream not to... Or to get out of Dodge, right, before before the uh, Herod's soldiers make it to Bethlehem. And uh, the Magi avoid Herod on the way home. Uh, but a, a really unfortunate, well, it's a, sort of a tragic irony in the story, is that Jesus finds safety where? In Egypt. Which, of course, for a Jewish person to find safety in Egypt instead of in God's promised land, it means that something's very, very wrong with the world. Right, because Egypt is, of course, in the Exodus story where they leave to go to the promised land. And so the fact that the promised land has become a place where God is not safe and he has to go to Egypt to be safe is, is a huge red flag that something is very, very wrong. But that's how, that's how Matthew starts his story of Jesus. He wants you to be thinking in terms of Exodus. So a few, a few chapters later, when Jesus climbs up on top of a mountain, and starts quoting the Ten Commandments and then reinterpreting it, what is he doing? Yeah, he's giving them a new Torah. right? He's giving them a new Ten Commandments. When he chooses 12 disciples and says, I'm going to have you guys follow me around, what's he doing? 12 tribes. He's reestablishing Israel. Because remember, we talked about last time, they were lost in the Assyrian conquest. The, the ten northern tribes were gone. Um, you, couldn't, you couldn't find them anymore. You didn't know who was 12 tribes. And so when and when Jesus is doing these things, no you know, no one's like, is that on purpose? Like, is he, does he know what he's doing? Like, it's very clear. You know, when he says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. That's one of the big ten that Moses got on top of a mountain. And he's sitting on a mountain and saying, you've heard it said, don't murder. I'm telling you, and he reinterprets it. I mean, he's, he's acting like Moses, right? And he's reconstituting Israel. So this, I mean, this is a clearly some sort of new exodus event that Jesus imagines himself to be participating in. And then, of course, the question of the gospel stories is, is he going to do it or not? Which, you know, spoiler, we, know, we all know, yes, he, he was. But, but that's kind of where the tension in the story is, right? Matthew wants us to see that Jesus' story is the whole story of Israel. You know, he's Moses. He's David. He's, he's the nation of Israel itself. He's, he's the, the world, the kingdom, the temple, the house, all in that one body. So he's, he's going around and intentionally stacking all of these cultural symbols up in what he's doing, um, specifically to tell everyone something brand new is happening. And this is not like what was going on before. It, it is, but it's not, right? So uh, let's skip over to the Gospel of John. Uh, I have on the very back of your page, yeah, on the very back there, there's a there's a, a fun diagram I made for you guys. Uh, this is this is the prologue to the Gospel of John. It's the first 18 verses, and this is what this. Okay, now I'm just gonna tell you ahead of time. Take a couple deep breaths. 
This is one of those super advanced Bible study things that you find mostly in commentaries. It's called a chiasm. Okay? I don't know why they, I do know. It's named after the Greek letter chi, which is an X. And so it's a, it's a passage that sort of makes an X. And so what the reason I separate it out, like you'll, you'll notice that it's sort of like a V, it's because what they do in a chiasm is it's sort of it's sort of like poetry, except it, I mean this is a this is a narrative, so it's not poetry, but they parallel the beginning and the end, and then like the second and the second to last, and then the third and the third to last. And so it kind of makes a big arrow pointing at something in the middle, whatever's in the middle. And the, the reason it's a literary device that they use it all the time in the ancient in ancient writings. And it's it's basically like whatever the arrow is pointing at, that's the point. Like that, there, it's like uh, it's a literary way to be like this is the thing that we're talking about. And so in the Gospel of John, this is like uh, verse. You can see that the arrow is pointing down to verse 12 right there. It's like a thesis statement for the Gospel of John. He wants you to know what the the whole reason he wrote this book is why that to all who believed and accepted in him, he gave the right to become children of God. The whole point of this story is so that people can know how to become children of God because Jesus came among them, okay? So uh, there's one other, well, there's a, about 50 other really cool things on it, but there's one thing I want to call your attention to that's, I think, incredibly fascinating. And one of the reasons that the Gospel of John, if you haven't been able to pick that up so far uh, in this class, is my favorite gospel by leaps and bounds. Um, it wasn't always that way. In fact, in grad school, uh, I started out, the Gospel of Mark was my favorite, and John was like way down on the list. I just didn't like it very much because it was weird. Jesus was saying weird stuff all the time, like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be part of my kingdom. And it's like, you, you couldn't have said that some other way, man. That's weird. Like, And of course, everyone, like, when he said that, everyone's like, okay, we're out. That's, you know, it's too weird for us. It's like, yeah, if you would have just, like, spoken like a normal person, you know, I was always like, yeah, I don't know. But the more I, I decided to study the Gospel of John because I didn't, I was like, well, it's my least favorite, so I'm going to study it. And sure enough, it became my most favorite for reasons like this. So, um, in the beginning and the end, you have some language about Jesus. So it says, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God, and God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave, gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Now, there's clear creation language there, right? When you started with in the beginning, and that's how Genesis starts, it's not an accident. And we've talked about it here before, how John intentionally used a bunch of creation language, right? Even ending with the, you know, the man and the woman in the garden, and it's the first day of the new creation week and all of that. But here, he begins his whole gospel by framing it in terms of creation. He wants you to understand that whatever is going on in this story, it's, it has to do with creation. And he frames it with this character, the Word, who, of course, we learn pretty quickly is Jesus. Um, but this Word is that Word. That, I mean, how does God create in Genesis 1? Let there be. He speaks, right? He uses words. Word, the Word. So it's whatever this Word is, it's this, it's this divine creative power of God, the Word of God, the speaking of God, that becomes incarnate in this person, right? Uh, jumping ahead a little bit, but the Word becomes flesh. The Word becomes a human. Um now, on the other, the, at the end, the way it ends is it says, from his abundance, still talking about the word, we received all, uh, uh, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and uh, faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. So there's something really cool going on here because all of a sudden, out of nowhere, remember this is at the end, right? Out of nowhere, we just brought up Moses. Okay, um, but remember, 
that for the Jewish people, what, on Sinai, what they received, they called the Torah the way or the instruction of God, but they understood that to be like the way that they were created to live, that the Torah was this sort of like creative language because the Exodus is a creation story, right? And so the, the Torah that they received from Moses was, was the word of God. It was just the word of God specifically for humans. And so it actually, if you, if you see that it's a chiasm, that it's this parallel kind of thing going on, it actually makes sense because we're talking about the word that created everything, and now we're talking about the word that created people, right? And so it's like, uh, and specifically God's people. So it's like, okay, there's, there's some parallel going on there. All right. And then in the middle, we get this passage about John the Baptist, which I have to tell you, when someone first told me that this was a chiasm, I was like, oh, okay, that makes some sense out of this John the Baptist stuff. Because I don't know if you've ever read John 1, 1 through 18 before, but like the John the Baptist stuff just keeps popping up in there and then it goes away. And it comes back again later. And you're like, what? Can you just lump all the John stuff together and keep it? To, I mean, that's how you write, right? You don't split stuff up. If you're an editor, you're like, okay, move this over here. You're, you know, but John intentionally splits them. And that's actually one of the big signs that you're dealing with one of these chiasms. It's when, when you're reading and looking for these things, you look for weird stuff like that. And so here you have, you know, verses 6 through 8, and verse 15 you have talking about John the baptizer. Why? Because this is a chiasm. You have them paralleled together. You have John talking about, um, testifying about Jesus. And so then you have below that, you have the two that are talking about, um, you know, Jesus coming into the world and the people not recognizing him. And then on the other hand, you have people who are being reborn, right? Not with a physical birth. So it's all about birth and who your tribe is and all of that kind of stuff. And they're both parallel like that. And of course, in the middle is to everyone who believes he gave the right to become children of God. So you have this nice, you have this nice thing. But what's also interesting here, to add another layer to it, is that we have this sort of dissension and ascension. Because Jesus starts out where? With God, which, I mean, up, right? Again, for the ancient world, heaven, up there, right? And then he descends to the earth. And then where does it end? It ends with him near the Father's heart, which is, of course, going to be up again. So we have this nice guy, which we know that's what Jesus' earthly journey was, right? He, he comes from heaven, and then he ascends back to heaven. Okay. Well, that's the exact opposite of Moses' journey to receive the Torah, right? Moses starts on the earth, and ascends to the top of the mountain, receives the law up there, and then comes back down. So it's just this nice kind of visual, artistic, and again, I, John didn't have to do that. He just he wanted to write a really cool story of Jesus, and so he's building all of this stuff into it. But here's where it gets really, really interesting. He makes this curious statement at the end of, which is at the top over here. He says, no one has ever seen God except for the unique one who is God himself, who is near the Father's heart. Now, those of you who are familiar with Moses' story will know that there is a particular verse that says what? Yeah, he said, it said Moses talked to God as one man talks to another face to face. Now, John obviously knows his Old Testament, but he put in there this curious thing. He's like, well, no one's ever seen God, except this, including this Moses guy that I just, like I literally just talked about him. So it's not like he forgot about Moses, right? Why did he do that? What is he trying to say there? Well, what he's trying to say is that when Moses was on Sinai receiving the written Torah, he was receiving it from Jesus, that that's who he was speaking with face to face, the living Torah, the incarnate word, the one who, so, so that essentially what Moses was doing on top of the mountain was communing with Jesus, receiving the instruction, the way from the one who is the way. 
writing it all down and then taking a written record of Jesus back down the mountain with him. Right? So that gets really funny. See, this sets up really, really funny stuff later because Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees and they start quoting the Torah to him. They're like, well, Jesus, like, you know, in the Torah, it says, and he's like, oh, is that what the Torah says? Oh, thanks for the heads up. Because, of course, he's the one that gave Moses the Torah. He is the Torah. And so it, it creates this really humorous kind of like wah, wah moment where, you know, Jesus, is, because, because he is the embodiment of God. And so when he walks around saying, I am, I am, I am, and everyone gets mad at him, we know from this prologue, oh, no, he is. Right? Isn't that fun? No, that's, well, I'm telling you, that's like, that's where, that's what commentaries are for, right? You have guys that spend their entire lives reading just the Gospel of John, you know, uh, and, and that's where this stuff kind of stuff comes from. There's a fantastic two-volume commentary of the Gospel of John by Craig Keener, who's a fantastic New Testament scholar, and he's the one that pointed all this stuff out uh, that I draw a lot from. So if that, and again, this is why the Gospel of John is my favorite, because this is 18 verses of the first chapter, right? And we just kind of blew through it. We could spend months in this. Uh, in fact, one of the ancient church fathers is said to have uh, quoted, he said, the, the gospel of John is a pool in which a child can wade and an elephant can swim. And so that's it. You can take your John 3.16, put it on a sign at a baseball game, or you can do this kind of stuff with it, right? And both of them are great. So um, so the point, though, the point is that Jesus is the Moses, the Torah, and uh, you remember a couple weeks ago when we talked about temple, this is where we get the word became flesh and tabernacle, right? That he's the temple. So all of those images are just here in these 18 verses at the beginning of the Gospel of John, setting up everything that's going to come after this. Excellent. Any questions about all that? Uh, we went through that super fast. Okay. I know, it, it does. You Just read through it, have fun with it, keep your little chiasm diagram thing there. It's a lot of fun. Um, and actually, again, too, since we're only a week, after this left, you just read through the Gospel of John and watch for some of these things, right? Watch for when they're talking about the law, the Torah, right? And just pay attention. Okay, so now that you know that Jesus is the Torah, like just pay attention to how all that stuff goes, right? When they're when they're talking about things like the healing on the Sabbath and that kind of stuff, and Jesus saying, "Well, I have to work because my Father is still with me," right? all that all that kind of stuff. Um, that's that's what you kind of start to watch for. So, uh, okay, so then. At the end of, we're, we're starting to get now into uh, what's going on on the cross. Okay, because of course that's the end of the Jesus story. That's where everything's headed. And in, in John's version of the crucifixion, Jesus is not, this is not a surprise to us because of how everything was framed at the beginning, but Jesus is specifically presented as the Passover lamb. Okay, now in, in the other three Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Passover uh, the, the Last Supper is the Passover meal. Okay, so earlier that day, they took a lamb to the temple and had it slaughtered, and they're eating the lamb and, and other, it's, it is the full Passover meal, okay? In John's gospel, though, John takes out the Last Supper. If, if you've ever noticed, John does not have a Last Supper. Instead, he has a foot washing, and he actually has Jesus crucified the day uh, before, or sorry, he has, he has that meal happens the day before Passover which means that Jesus is being crucified at the same time as all of the Passover lambs are being slaughtered. And, and that's, a, that's an important thing that John does on purpose because he wants to portray Jesus as the Passover lamb. 
he wants that imagery to be very strong and 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 for us not to miss it that that Jesus uh, is being crucified to free us from slavery to sin right and then he leads us into the wilderness and so if you go back to what I was I was kind of joking about earlier uh, in John five and six uh, he gives us not manna to eat in the wilderness but he gives us his own body and blood and that's that whole that whole argument that everyone's having there it actually is Jesus's fault because he feeds them does the feeding of the 5,000, and then he leaves, and then they follow him, and they're like, hey, do you have more food? And he says, well, actually, now now you need to eat the bread that comes from heaven. And they're like, yeah, but I'm hungry. Like, do you have some regular food? And he's like, no, I'm not going to give you regular food. And then they they try to get theological on him. They're like, well, I mean, God gave the Israelites manna in the wilderness. And Jesus says, well, right, and then they all died. So... If you want to eat manna and die like your forefathers in the wilderness, go ahead. But if you want to live, you need to eat the true bread that comes down from heaven, which is my body. And then that's when he says, unless you eat my, my body and drink my blood, you can't have any place in my kingdom. And they're like, you're too weird. Forget it. We're just going to go home and eat our own food. So. And they walked away. Oh, no. He didn't say, no, 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 I didn't mean what I said. No, he meant what he said. He meant what he, he, meant what he said. Yeah, he meant that if. Yeah. Eating the flesh. Yeah. And it was radical what he was saying because he was talking about eating the flesh and eating the blood. Mm -hmm. And to the Israelites and the Jews who couldn't have blood, it was it was a radical thing. Yeah. And they walked away. Yeah. Absolutely. And for fifteen hundred years, the church believed that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, um, what? Yeah, I think I think that's what's so fascinating about that wilderness encounter is they they were like Jesus basically saying like, look, I'm not the kind of God that you want. Like you want a God who's basically just going to do magic tricks, right? Who's going to give you stuff when you want it and all of that. And that's not who I am. Like, like I follow like if you follow me, it leads to a cross, you know, and, and they they didn't want that. And so they walked away and he's like, well, I mean, I can't like what I'm not going to change what I'm here to do. You know, just so you'll follow me. And so then that's when he turns to the 12 and he's like, so you guys going to bail too? And they they basically go, we don't have anywhere else to go. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like we're with you. Um, they don't understand. They're just as confused as everyone else. But they, they say, you know, in you, we found the words of life. So we're going we're gonna to stick with you, you know. Um, so all that to say, what we see in John's gospel is what scholars call the ransom theory of atonement, which is just what it sounds like. Jesus buys us back out of slavery, right? He, he uh, redeems us. And so, and then ultimately, finally, at the end of John's gospel, of course, he brings us into the new creation, into the new promised land, into. So, okay, good. All right. So that's, the problem is that that's just the, ex that's just the exodus, right? And if, if, if Jesus is all of Israel's story, that Jesus is also exile. Okay, not just Exodus, but he's also exile. He's also this despair, this, this crushing sense of the end of all things. Okay? And 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 rightfully so, we can understand that as his crucifixion. Um but even though John frames even though John frames the crucifixion in terms of, of Passover and of Exodus and all of that, that's not the only way that early Christians understood what happened on the cross. Okay, there were several different um, several different ways. That they talked about it, different metaphors that that they use, and and it's not like one of them is right and wrong. I mean, they're all di just like we've been talking about symbols, right? They're all different ways 
drawing on Israel's history and how God has worked in Israel's story and human history. They're all, all different ways for us to talk about what happened on the cross, okay? Which is, again, good. just go back to put it the way John did it, that we have the right to become children of God. I mean, that's, that's the, that, that we're saved, that we're rescued, that we're redeemed, all of those kinds of things. So in Israel's day, uh, sorry, in, in Jesus's day, the Israelites, the people, the Jewish people, the people who were ethnically Jewish, who were living in uh, Judea, in the geographical borders of the promised land, right? They still considered themselves to be living in exile, even though they were living in the promised land, because they were still under the rule of empires. They'd had that brief period of independence during the Maccabean revolt. It was about uh, 100 years. But, but other than that, they'd been under an empire's rule since 586 BC, since Babylon. And so they still had this they still have this sense that after nearly 500 years, they were still living under the wrath of God, that God was still in some way punishing them. Uh, and so that, that, for instance, is where the Pharisees came from. You know, they thought uh, that their, they thought that the temple system wasn't getting the job done, that it was corrupt, that it was being ruled by, you know, cronyism and nepotism and all of that kind of stuff. And so it wasn't truly holy the way God wanted it to be holy. And that must be why, they're still in exile, right? And so you had a group of people that decided if the temple wasn't going to be holy, they were going to be holy, and they were going to keep Torah themselves, and they wouldn't rely on the priests to lead them in that. And so you had a group of people that decided they would start taking God's law very seriously, and they would start living it very strictly um, in order in order to become holy again. And, of course, by Jesus' day, we saw where they sort of ended up with that. Um, but it started out as a good sentiment, and one that was born out of this sense of exile, the sense that, 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 that still, still, they had not, even though they had a temple, and even though they were returned to their land, it wasn't right yet. There was still something missing. There was still something broken. There was still something, um, got, and really that was embodied in the presence of Rome. Rome was the final proof that things weren't okay yet, that Rome was still there, that Rome was making all these claims to dominate the world, that you know all roads lead to Rome, that the world revolves around Rome, that Rome's gods are the gods, and the Jewish people could offer their sacrifices as long as they sacrificed for Caesar also, you know, and then all that. So um, in coming in, in coming to terms with their own experience of exile, I mean, you can imagine this, right? After, after God allows them to be destroyed, they have to sort of figure out how to process this. They have to figure out how to understand it in a way that makes sense. And one of the, one of the things that they sort of came up with is the series of poems that we call today the Suffering Servant. These are in Isaiah. Uh, I can almost guarantee you, if you've ever been in church before, you've heard them. Uh, they're, they're very popular still but in both Jewish and Christian communities. Um, but most commentators interpret these Suffering Servant texts, and there's, there's several poems. I'm just gonna, we're just going to read from one of them. Um, but they, they interpret them as originally applying to the whole nation of Israel that they understood that this was Israel's plight in, uh, in the world. And so look here at Isaiah 53. This, I'll just read the first six verses. And again, don't be surprised if a lot of this language sounds familiar. Isaiah says, Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. That servant being the nation of Israel. Okay. 
Now, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our back on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellions, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. And it goes on past that again. Probably most all of us here have heard that several times. And it's no surprise, reading that, that the early Christians would have heard the echoes of Jesus' crucifixion in those texts. Right? I mean, it, it leaps off the page at you, especially if you happen to have been there. You know, you can't get, I mean, it's, it's, wouldn't be surprising if people who were witnessing the crucifixion would have, would have even just had that text ringing in the back of their minds, having heard it in synagogue, you know, I don't know, lots of times, right? And so it's not surprising that they would look at this and say, here is yet another way that Jesus is Israel's story. You know, just like he is Moses, just like he is the Torah, just like he is the temple, just like he is David, so too is he this suffering servant. He is this person who is suffering for the sin of the world. He is this person who is being whipped and crushed and bruised and, you know, on and on and on for the sake of other people. Not for him, because they know he didn't deserve it, but for other people. And so this, um, this suffering servant becomes an image of Jesus, right? That Jesus is yet again fulfilling this aspect of Israel's story. Now the question, uh, is that, are we good? Is that? Okay, okay. Um, the question I want to ask then is how? How is Jesus' suffering redeeming and rescuing other people? Because there's, there's, you know, so I have two more words left up here. Um, there's, there's two other ways that we understand what happened on the cross in addition to the ransom theory, the, the Jesus is the Passover lamb. The first one is called Christus Victor, which is Latin for Christ the Victor. Right. Um, so, for instance, in Colossians, Paul tells us that in death, Jesus disarmed the powers. OK, now that's that's classic empire language, because every human power in history is ruled through the fear of death. Right. Particularly in conquest. Empires basically say, do it my way or I'll kill you. That's they, they rule with what you call it, ruling by the tip of the sword. Rome was famous for us. They would come to a city that they were going to attack. And they would, they would offer them their terms of surrender. And they would say, you can either have these now or after we defeat you. And, and they wouldn't change the terms after they defeated them. So it very quickly became the rule that, like, you just say yes up front and do whatever they want. Because otherwise it's do whatever they – you'll get, you know, destroyed by Rome and then you get that. So um, death, is, death is the empire's most powerful weapon. And the Roman cross was death on display. It was – uh, it was torture made spectacle. Okay, so the, the, whole, the whole process of crucifixion was to instill the fear of death in the people who were watching. That's why they parade them through the middle of town. That's why they make a public spectacle out of the beating and the whipping and all of that. Um, it, was, it was basically like an ancient bloody billboard that advertised the cost of defying Rome. It said, if you rise up against Rome, if you proclaim any other king but Caesar... 
if you choose not to follow the Roman gods, this is what happens to you. So everyone was like, okay, we won't, right? So Jesus was crucified for pro proclaiming that the world belongs to God, not to Rome. And on Good Friday, it seemed like Rome was right because they killed him, right? They went for the nuclear option and they won. Except, as you know, three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And so what he proved in rising from the dead is that following God leads to life. Even if God has to raise you from the dead to make that so, God will allow nothing to, to get in the way of life for his people, even death. And because God is the creator God, the God of the universe, the God who invented life, God has the power to overcome death. So essentially, Jesus took Rome's most powerful weapon away from them. He disarmed them. That's what Paul said. Because if death isn't permanent, then the empire doesn't have any teeth anymore. It's all, it's all bark and no bite. Right? So, so in dying, Jesus disarms the powers. He takes away their weapons. That's why we call it Christus Victor, Christ the Victor. Because his death, ironically, yeah, yeah, he wins by dying, which is not a battle strategy most people implement, right? You don't you don't start a you don't start a war by executing your top general. That's not that's not how anyone fights, except that's how God fought. So look at this picture we have of Jesus in Revelation 19. We're going all the way to the end, almost all the way to the end. We'll go all the way to the next week. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff going on in Revelation. We don't have time to unpack it all. But here it says, Then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. And its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And a name was written on him that no one understood except him himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robes at his thighs was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Okay, so there's a couple of, a couple of, there's all kinds of imagery in here. Most of it's drawn from, this is Revelation 19, so we've had 19 chapters of symbolism and stuff like that. And most of the things like the eyes of fire and all of that are coming from there. But there's a couple of, couple of things in here that are of particular note. Um, first of all is the robe that's dipped in blood. Uh, repeatedly in the Revelation, it makes a big deal out of the fact that Jesus has died and risen from the dead. That that's sort of like the defining characteristic of him. And so here, too, we have Jesus who's riding into battle dead and resurrected. Right. It's, it's, it's already this is this is post resurrection. So we already have this, you know, winning by dying kind of thing going on. Um, the second thing is the sword of his mouth. Uh, now, again, the sword is a pretty popular biblical imagery. It kind of started with the prophets um, talking about the word of God as a sword. Right. So in, for instance, in the book of Hebrews, it says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword. Jesus talks all the time about. Uh, judging, and in Greek the word judging is the same word as to slice or to divide. And so you have this idea of the, the, the word cutting, right? So it lends itself nicely to a sword image, a sword metaphor, right? Um, in fact, one of, the, one of the prophets, I think it's Amos. I should have looked it up before class. This is embarrassing. Uh, one of them says that he's going to come and make war on them with the sword of his mouth, 
right? And again, what, what, it, what it means is that the, what God is going to do is basically proclaim truth, and that is how, that's what divides those who are righteous from those who are wicked, is, is the truth. And righteousness leads to life, and wickedness leads to death. And so that's how, that's how Jesus wages war against his enemies. Having, having died and risen from the dead, he has established what the truth of the universe is. And it's not death. It's life. And so if you choose to ally yourself with the false gods, whoever they are, you will end in death. And Jesus' sword will pierce you. But it's not, this, it's not like a sword. I mean, it's, 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 his, it's, his, it's his testimony. It's his truth. It's who he is. So that's, that's what Christus Victor means there. Um, man, there's a lot more in there I wish we could we have time for, but we just don't. Talk about that. Yeah, okay. Good. Good analogy. Yeah. And so, good. Well, yeah. And so, that's that's essentially what all of this, when you all of these biblical metaphors of the word of God, which again goes all takes all the way back to Genesis one. This the word of God is that creative, shaping, forming, pruning force. I mean that you know this cutting away is a part of creation, right? Yes. 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 And so so if you are not willing to submit to that process, you are cut away, you know, and, and there's there's plenty of places in the scriptures that talk about God pruning and they, which which, again, pruning is a fundamentally creative act. Right. Why do you prune? You prune to allow the plant to flourish. Right. But in the act of pruning, you are cutting away dead or dying or toxic uh, growth, right? And so it's that, that's that same kind of metaphor that when God, when God speaks truth, we choose either to let that true, truth form us or let it destroy us. You know, if, if we continue to say no to God, I, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, that when the truth comes, why would we think we're going to be on the right side of it? Right? I mean, that, that, that that's silly. Um, so that's that's what's that's that's the tip of the iceberg of Christus Victor, but it's a, it's good for tonight, right? That's that's what it means. Is Jesus is the victor that on the cross he defeated the powers, he defeated death, he defeated Satan, he defeated all the false gods, right? In the most crazy way possible by letting them do their worst. Uh, one of my favorite scholars, N.T. Wright, uh, says that on the cross Jesus allowed evil to exhaust itself upon him. You know, basically it did it, it did the very worst it could possibly do. And then he just rose from the dead. Right? So that, that's what Christus victor means. That, that Jesus is the victor. Um, good. So now let's talk about the final one, which is substitution. So, obviously, wrapped up 
in the idea of Christus Victor is the reality of empire, right? And remember that for the Israelites, for all of the Jewish people living in Jesus' day, for Jesus himself, they understood that empire is God's wrath, right? That when they choose to be disobedient, God, God says, okay, have it your way. I'll just, I'll just sit back and let you have you uh, go back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago. I'll let you have your treaties with Egypt, right? I'll, I'll let you make it. Go ahead. You think Egypt's going to save you better than I can? Go ahead. See what happens. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to let Babylon do what they want. And they came in and they did what they wanted, right? And we see that from the book of Judges forward, that when, when God's people refuse to obey him, God says, okay, you, you go ahead and pray to whoever you want. You know, go ahead and build your little idols, pray, make your little treaties. Go ahead, see what happens. And they're instantly, instantly, almost instantly conquered, right? And it's only in it's only in the experience of conquest that they repent, and that they come back and they say, "We were wrong, we're sorry," and then God rescues them. But that that's for them that that's how they understood God's wrath. That when God was wrathful against His people. He would give them over to what they were chasing instead of holding them back, instead of protecting them, instead of it's, it's basically, you know, instead of letting them or keeping them from doing what they wanted. He would just. And so in Romans, for instance, this is a great this is a great place that just shows that very clearly. Romans one it says God showed his anger. Other translations will say wrath, right? Showed his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who to suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Right? God is so evident in creation. There's no, there's no excuse for not knowing God, for not knowing some of the basic truths about who God is. It's, God has woven it into the fabric of creation, which of course he has, right? because he created with his divine word. The Torah, the same word that Moses received on Sinai, the same word that we saw in Jesus walking around and teaching is the same word that's woven through the fabric of creation. It's all the same God. And so if you're paying attention, you can discern the nature and character of that God in creation. So people have no excuse. That's what Paul's saying, right? Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think of foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise. Instead, they became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So, because of that, because they exchanged God for things, for idols, right? God abandoned them to do whatever their shame, whatever shameful things their hearts desired. Because they chose to ignore God, that God's wrath was revealed by God letting them do whatever they wanted to do. Which sounds, I mean, initially that just doesn't seem like a very severe punishment. I mean, this is a teenager's dream, right? Mom and dad are like, no, 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 no. The mom and dad are like, do whatever you want, I don't care. Right? Teenagers would be like, Woo! That doesn't seem that doesn't seem like wrath. It doesn't seem like a punishment. It doesn't seem bad. It seems great. Right? Except that only God can give us life. 
and only God's way leads to life. So it might seem like fun to do whatever we want, except that when we go off of God's way, there's only one other destination for us, death. Which is why a couple of chapters later, Paul says, and the wages of sin is death. That empires always pay in destruction. Right? That there is no other way for that story to end besides in despair, in the loss of everything. So, yeah, it actually is wrath. It actually is punishment for God to give us what we want. For God to say, okay, have it your way. I'm just going to step back and give you what you want. And so, again, this is what is embodied in the cross. That Israel got to do what it wanted, and the result was conquest, death. Yeah, yeah, Steve, go ahead. Yeah, mixed in uh, constant reminders of him being our father and children. Yeah. And our childish nature. Yeah. Appreciate what, what you're bringing is because it's like the. So, back it down from teenagers, what I'm saying is when you tell the child, no, don't touch the cookie tray, it just came out of the oven and it's hot. I want to touch the and then they touch it. Bam. Yeah. Right? They just learn. <laughs> I'm not Dad's not an idiot. He knows what he's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're so immature and childish in our nature that if that's, that's really yeah. the relationship I see is, yeah. hey, you know, if you want to do it that way, and then whack, bang, knuckle, you know, smash my thumb with a hammer, you know, as I'm growing up learning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that that's a really important statement. You have you have to bear in mind that this is God as a father, right? In Hebrews, in fact, I think it's in 12, 12 somewhere. I think it's in twelve. Uh, he says, um, "If you are experiencing the disciplining of God, rejoice, because only parents who love their children discipline their children." And so the fact that you're receiving discipline is proof that God loves you. It would actually be a bad sign. That's why I want to think of it. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, no, not at all. No, this is um, this is very much an act, of, uh, an act of love, saying you're not listening to me, right, over and over and over. I think we saw that when we read the Jeremiah passage a couple weeks ago, right? Like I've done everything I can think of to get through to you. And you just refuse. Every time I turn around, you're worshiping some other false god. So fine. Like, maybe this will work. Right? Um, if this, and, and, and more, or if this doesn't work, nothing will. Right? I mean, some people are just determined to go their own way. Yeah, well, yeah. I, fortunately, we can, we can rest in the confidence that God is the perfect parent. Right, and that when God decides to in, invoke some kind of a discipline, whether it's a soft hand or a hard hand, that that is the best option for us. Right? I mean, I, all of you who have kids uh, know no no two kids are the same. Right? You can't discipline your two. Uh, what works on one kid would not work on the other kid. My brother and I growing up, I hate running. I still to this day hate running. Uh, my brother loves it. He's like a total jock. And so my mom invented a great punishment. I'm the oldest. Uh, I'm 
four and a half years older than my brother. Great punishment was I had to run to the stop sign at the end of our blocking bag. And if I had to do that, I was just, I was, I quit doing whatever I was doing because that was just the worst. Um, she'd send my brother out to do it though. And he'd do it like four or five times and come back in and just keep back at whatever he was doing. Cause he just run. Sure. I'd love to run. Um, so she had to figure out, you know, you can't do the same thing. So all of that to say, yes, like we do have to trust that. Um, and again, uh, back to that Hebrews passage, right? Uh, it's actually, it's actually a, a good thing when we're receiving discipline and correction from God, because it is, it is proof of God's love for us. You know, if God did not discipline us, though, it would show that he doesn't care about us. Good, that's James. Very good. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so again, we there we have to understand what this what this all looks like. Now, where this all comes to a head on the cross, particularly for Jesus, is that um, Jesus actually dies in our place, right? He he substitutes his death for ours. That we all who choose false gods, who choose to walk away from God, we are courting death. And as Paul says, the wages of sin is death. It's always death. But Jesus, in dying for us, he's the substitute for us. Now, I want to make a very clear distinction, and this may not be for for all of us, but there are there are some uh, in in Christianity who try to basically, and I don't think they do it on purpose, but they sort of accidentally pit God the Father against Jesus, as though, and this kind of Steve back to your point, as though God is just sort of like a judge who's waiting up in heaven to to judge us real hard. And like give us punishment, and Jesus like steps in at the last minute and takes it for us, and God's kind of like begrudgingly like, well, I guess that would do, you know. Like, uh, and I, I sort of grew up with that picture of the cross, you know, that um, there was like this angry, wrathful God that just like couldn't wait to punish people, and then Jesus took it on the chin for us. And that's, I mean, that should go without saying that that's not an accurate picture of what happened on the cross. Um, first of all, because we believe in the Trinity, we can't separate. The Father and the Son, like that. What what we say about the Trinity is that what one does, all do, right? And so, if Jesus is on the cross, the Father is on the cross, right? And and that if God, if if the Father is wrathful, then Jesus is wrathful. And so it's not that it's not like you know, Jesus is like, come on, Dad, give him a break, and God's like, oh, I guess so, son. You know, it's not it's not something like that. There there's never division or disunity or tension within the Trinity. Um, because because God is perfect love. Why do you think that Jesus went across that hard for us? Because they don't know what they do. He can't already knew that. God already was. He was. He was there. He was with uh-huh. us all. You know, was it more for himself? Uh, I think it. it, it for those, for I think. Listening? I think it's. I think it's for us. Yeah. For for the people listening. For. Yeah. yeah very much. I mean, what is it? What does it mean? Like, what does it mean? First of all. For someone, to, for someone who's on a cross, which is the position of the least power, the most shame. I mean, it's like as if you're on a cross, like you're you're to to be offering forgiveness to people. I mean, to offer forgiveness means you're in a place of power, right? When someone has wronged you and you offer for, I mean, there's you you have a power over them. And so, first of all, like it totally says that this is Jesus's choice. You know that he's that he's he is choosing to be. And that he's offering them. But then also, I mean, the incredible, I, I, how many of us have the strength of character that after being tortured for 
four or five hours and then being in that amount of like physical and emotional and spiritual pain could have the character just to pray that, you know, I have no idea if I do. I hope I do, but I've never, I've never been within a light year of that sort of situation. You know, um, I'm willing to bet most of us haven't. Uh, so, I mean, it's all, it's also, I think a huge example for us, for the people around him, for all of that. And the other thing is we also know Jesus did pray to the father all the time that he was, that was his method of, of communion. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I think it's all of those things. It's yeah. 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 Yes. 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 Right. Be- because for us to confess that Jesus is fully human, for us to say that he's a living, breathing, walking Torah, that means that he's our prototype. Right? That what we that that's what that's why we say our final goal is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Right? That we're we we are to look like Jesus, obviously not physically. But but uh, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, personally, like, you know, like we are we are to be someone who looks like him. And so, yeah, whatever we see him doing. <laughs> Why? OK. You're it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you think too, you don't want anybody you don't want your children to get a taste of what true God is. Um such a scary Yeah. Yeah. Scary idea um of that or anyone else for that matter. Yeah, you want your children to be saved. Yeah. 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 I, I think of the verse where Paul tells the Corinthians, uh, follow me because I follow Christ. Right. You know, he's like, if there's any, const- if you have any questions about what Jesus would do, you just watch me. <laughs> it's like, whoa. Okay. Yeah. Right. I mean, it is, it's, it's, but, but to under, I mean, this is, this is part of why I really am on Nazarene on purpose is because we have a very high view of sanctification of what it means to become like Jesus. Uh, and we believe that commands like this or where Jesus says, you know, be perfect as your father in heaven are perfect, that these are things we are to strive for. You know, that we're not to just sit back and say, well, I'm just a sinner. You know, like, mm-hmm. um, we're saying, well, yeah, I am a sinner, but the spirit is alive and, and, and working within me. And it's the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And therefore I can strive for these things and I can I can grow and I can achieve victory and I can. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't take away the crazy intimidation factor of that thought, but, but there is this, there's this hope and this expectation that, you know, I ought to be more like Jesus today than I was yesterday and a year from now than I was last year, you know, so on and so forth. And that if we, if we discover that we're stagnant in our spiritual lives, that's a, that should be a big red flag. Um, and I, one of the things I appreciate about the church of the Nazarene is that we take that seriously. Um, it's, it's in our documents, you know, it's, it's something that we, celebrate so okay uh so ransom chris's victor substitution substitution is 
Jesus becoming the sacrifice, dying in our place, right? He takes the wrath of the empire upon himself. So, so God is bearing God's own wrath in our place. Um, he is also conquering the powers. He is also purchasing our freedom. All of these things. I mean, again, to ask which one is right, they're all right. They're all different ways of understanding uh, something that's probably a little bit beyond the bounds of language, right? Uh, so, um, okay. Before we leave here, uh, one of the question I left off of your homework that we're going to add at the end is I'm going to actually ask you to uh, chew on this week Psalm 22, which is "My God, My God, Why Have You Forsaken Me?" Because of course that's one of the other words on the cross, and we're going to I'll, I'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but. Uh, when we talk about this idea that God is never divided from God's self, we have to deal with Jesus saying that on the cross. Right? What do you mean by that? Uh, how does that? How does that work? How do we understand what, why he said that and what he meant by it, what that means for us? So, um, all right, let's talk. We have a few more minutes left. Let's talk about Apocalypse Today. Um, talk about this briefly at the beginning, what it means that the world ends. Obviously, it doesn't always mean... It hasn't ever meant so far the earth blew up. Um, but there are always moments that we could call maybe like reality check moments where, I mean, literally we stop and check reality because we just sort of mostly we go through life assuming a lot of things, right? Um, just because we, I mean, if you had to get up every morning and refigure out how the world works, um, you'd never get anything done. Uh, so there, I mean, we just, we kind of, most things we just kind of do on autopilot, Right. Um, and, and we don't ever think about them. And there are these moments that end up happening in our lives that cause us to stop, that sort of jar us out of our routine, and they make us wonder if the things that we have been building our lives on are actually as firm as we thought they were. Right? They're the, that, that's why I said they're reality check moments. They're moments that make us go, ooh, I better, I better stop and, and evaluate this. Um, so the question that apocalypse often begs is what survives the end of the world right if everything comes crashing down what what's still there anything yeah so that that's that's so for instance um are there any people in here who watch the walking dead i do okay a couple of us um, <laughs> about a zombie apocalypse, right? I'm sure most of you have probably at least seen a poster or something like that, but it's it's a whole TV show about how the whole world, as far as anyone can tell, has been overrun by zombies, and there are just very, very few humans left, and they're they're trying, the whole show is a, like a chronicling of them trying to figure out how to survive. Uh, zombies are super popular right now in pop culture. There's like three or four zombie movies a year, tons of books coming out about zombies. We even now have young adult zombie romance literature, which is super weird and gross, but it's there. Um, and the thing about zombie stuff, the reason zombie stories are so interesting to a lot of people, I think, is because zombies, zombie stories are stories of the end of the world. I mean, once zombies have happened, you can't go on with life as you knew it. Right? You have to be constantly on guard. Now there's a whole – everything has changed. And the really interesting thing about the vast majority of zombie stories, movies, books, TV shows, whatever, is that within the first few episodes or chapters or whatever, the zombies are not the main problem anymore. 
because they're sort of like just a natural disaster. They're a threat that everyone just sort of learns how to deal with, right? Um, and like in one, one zombie book that a friend of mine was telling me about, they actually pull carpet up and they, they like duct tape it around their arms and stuff because you can't, you can't like bite through it. So it's like a, like armor for zombies. And so like people can get along pretty well. If they need to go outside, like they just put on their carpet armor and like it's no big deal. Like, well, you know, okay. Um, I don't know, like creative. But if, if there's a zombie apocalypse, now you, you can have a survival tip. Um, but here's the point. Here's the point. Here's the point. I'm sorry. I got distracted. I like zombie stuff. Um, here's the point. The point is that the zombies quickly stop being the main threat. And the main threat actually becomes people. What zombie stories are often about is that if you peel back civilization, if you just remove it, people aren't actually very civilized as a, as a whole. It's Lord of the Flies. Right, it's it's that you 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 peel off that that there's it's this really uh, pessimistic view on people that we're actually not all that nice to each other unless we have to be, right? Unless there's something in it for us. And in in the apocalypse, you strip away all of the sort of the things that make society work, and you reduce people to like much more basic needs and drives and urges, and all of a sudden, it's nasty. And the undead corpses that want to eat your brains are suddenly actually not very threatening compared to the people that just showed up on your front door. And that's fascinating. It should be fascinating, right? Because it actually undercuts this uh, we're, This week in our uh, Sunday, uh, our God this week is the God of technology or the God of progress. And that's this idea, right, is that we're just getting better and better and better and better and better. And that all these things that we've invented for ourselves and medicines and smartphones and all of that, that they're just, they're making us, they're not just making our lives better. They're making us better, that we are more civilized and that we are more uh, cultured and that we are more wholesome than, than people of previous centuries. And what zombie literature says is, I'm not so sure that that's true. You know, I'm not so sure that we've actually changed all that much. I think that we just have better toys and so they cost more, right? Yeah. Um, so that, that's, a, that's a great example of current day uh, imaginative apocalypse. We have a lot of people who are wondering, you know, we've come a long way. And are we sort of on, on the tip of something falling apart? Um, a, a major, major shift for our culture, I think all of us know this, right, is, was 9-11, right? We, we're not the same country that we were before 9-11. Um, we, we have a lot of different fears, a lot of different anxieties. And what that was that was an apocalyptic moment. Why can everyone remember where they were, you know, when the, when that second plane hit? When the towers came down, right? When when uh, Bush gave that speech that night when he was all mad and like, it was like, why do we remember that? Because we were terrified. We had no idea what was going on. And the foundations of our culture were crumbling. We weren't as safe as we thought we were. We didn't know how bad the economy was going to get, but the World Trade Center just came down, so we knew it wasn't going to be pretty, right? And, and there were lots of things that we had put a lot of stock in, some, sometimes literally, right? That all of a sudden were not nearly as secure as we thought they were. And so that changed us. That changed us when those towers came down. Same thing happened, again, I, when, when JFK was shot. This is the 50-year anniversary of that. Right? And you go back and you go back and look at how that changed, 
how we viewed the presidency, how we understood our safety and all that kind of stuff. It, it rocked our culture, you know, in a way that other, you know, other assassinations even haven't. Um, because, it, because it did something to undermine culturally who we thought we were, right? It, it, it showed that the story that we tell ourselves maybe isn't totally true, right? That maybe, maybe the world isn't as secure as we think it is. True. Sure. Yeah. 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 Which, which again, coming out of, you know, that with World War II just being a generation previous to that, you know, that was scary. We had the nuclear technology. We didn't really still understand it in a lot of ways, right? I mean, if you look at movies from the 1950s, you know, nuclear energy could pretty much do whatever the writers wanted it to do. <laughs> we, just, we, we knew it was cool, but we didn't know what it did. Not like, certainly not, it's not as, you know, popularized as it is today. And so we just had no idea what that would mean for us. And it was terrifying. You know, it was, it was really terrifying. Um, yeah. I think instead of one of the things that, that I'm sure you're trying to do point out is Our government and our security in and of itself is kind of a god. It can be. We put, we put our faith yeah. and our trust and our, you know. And, it and can be, yeah. Our pilot safety, everything's okay when our true safety, our true future um, protection, you know, all of those things we're putting in our government and in our military. And in and of themselves, they're important right. to keep order and society. Right. Who, who thinks national security is a bad thing? No one. Okay, good. Yeah, and right? Like, Exactly. God said, you must go make all the alliances you want. Trust in Great Britain. Trust in our, you know, whoever. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. It's not going to work. Right. It's just not going to work. Right. That's not, that's not what's going to finally bring We're you. World yeah. Peace yeah. Conformity. Go ahead, Steve. Okay. One day there's a zombie. Uh, a meteor is going to hit in two days. All these movies plot. Yeah. Flood happens within hours or days. Everything's flooding. Um, but the thing that I've been thinking about is a slow apocalypse. Okay. The culture dumbing down our Christian values and, and things over yeah. generations. Seems like the culture, and 
this is Satan's big rouge, I guess, is, you know, everything's still like it was. You just change a little bit. You just compromise a little bit. No big deal, no big deal. But when you stretch that over 150 years, 200, whatever, all of a sudden you you take notice of where you are. And you're like, we are yeah. way off. It looks just as uh, just as devastating. So it's like a small yeah. Apocalypse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no one's done that, Steve. Coin that term. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's that's a, that's a reality as well. Um, that you have to and, and to a degree, I think what what ends up happening in those scenarios is that there's so much slow burn change, but then there ends up being some kind of a a trigger a trigger that makes everyone go like whoa 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 you know yeah. But again, it's that reality check. Like, yeah. 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 Okay. We have about 10 minutes left. Um, so I want to talk about, so, so that's, you can kind of start to get a sense of the cultural shifts, right, that have been going on. Um, I want to talk more now about what it feels like when you encounter an apocalypse on a personal Okay, um, on, so on a micro level, this is what this is what like a midlife crisis is about, right? At some point, you're building your life, you're following a script that you received from your parents or from your school or, or whatever, right? And so you're just going, going, building, 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 and then for some reason, you have one of those reality check moments. You kind of stop and look around at what you're building, and all of a sudden, it just doesn't seem worth it. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like what it was supposed to. It doesn't seem like it's going to promise you what you thought it was going to give you. So you decide that what will fix this is a sports car and a new younger spouse. You know. Um, but again, you it, sort of what happens is you sort of in in those in that quint, like uh, what a stereotypical midlife crisis, right? What ha what has happened there is all of the things that this person thought were giving their life value, they decide one day for some reason are empty. And so because the life that they were building, they've all of a sudden seen it's empty, they just sort of pitch it and they go chase after something else. And what else does our culture value a lot is, you know, fast cars and youth. And so they just kind of, you know, go pick on that. And they get a trophy spouse. Um, but what's really happening there is that sort of like micro apocalypse. Right? They're, saying, they're seeing that all of a sudden their world doesn't have value anymore. The things that they thought were shaping them and providing them meaning and significance aren't. And so they pitch everything. I mean, it's a wholesale, you know. And, and if you've ever um, known someone who's gone through an experience like this, really and truly on the other side of it, they're a totally different person. You, it's almost like you don't even know them anymore. You're like, what, what happened to you? You know, this isn't who you were. It, it, it's a, it is almost like a... In a, in a bad way, a death and resurrection, right? You don't recognize this person. And so so I don't think it's a, a, a stretch to call it apocalyptic, you know? Now, the thing is, this does not just happen in middle age. Uh, for some reason, that's the stereotype in our culture. I actually haven't ever done any research to figure out why. But there's this fantastic film. It's one of my top movies of all time called About Schmidt. Has anyone seen that? It's got uh, Jack Nicholson in it. A few of us have. Okay, have you, have you guys seen it? No? Okay. Um... It's rated R, so all the caveats that go along with it. But what I love – so I saw about Schmidt just because I'm a Jack Nicholson fan, and I'm uh, this director's name is Alexander Payne, huge Alexander Payne fan. Um, I saw this movie when I was 22 years old, 
I was a senior in college, and it was April when this film came out. And so I was literally like a month away from graduating and then going into the real world to like start my real life. You know, all the language that we tell college graduates, right? And so I'm sitting and watching this film, and about Schmidt is the story of this guy named Warren Schmidt. Uh, it's Jack Nicholson, and he's, it opens at his retirement dinner from some insurance agency. It's like, you know, some small town. I think they live in Nebraska. You know, some small Midwestern insurance firm, and they're at this the nice restaurant in town in the back room. They have it all blocked off, and all of his people are there. And his best friend slash colleague stands up to give a speech about him, it's, you know, his retirement speech. And so I put in here a quote um, above the line is the quote, uh, a quote from the end of that speech. So he's gone through and listed, uh, you know, they gave him a nice watch and all this kind of stuff, like a little party for him and all that. And he's like, he's saying, none of those things mean a thing. They don't mean a thing. None of, this is. none of these superficialities mean a thing. What means something, what really means something, Warren, is the knowledge that you devoted your life to something meaningful, to being productive and working for a fine company, to raising a family, to building a fine home, to being respected by your community, to have wonderful, lasting friendships. At the end of his career, if a man can look back and say, I did it, I did my job, then he can retire in glory, which is a religious word, and enjoy riches far beyond the monetary kind. So take a good look at a very rich man, and they toast him and everyone applauds and all that. And that's how the film opens. And so the rest of the film is going to evaluate whether that speech is true or not. Because that's a fairly straightforward description of what we would call the American dream. Isn't it? You know, you, you work hard all your life, you have a good family, you have, you're good in the community, and then you retire. And that's, I mean, that's, that's the dream, right? That's, that's what everyone, that's, that's the script that I received in high school, right? All the way up through. And so the film actually tries to evaluate this. Here's a man who did that. And I don't want to spoil the movie for you, but this is at the end, the, the, the bottom of it. What you basically see throughout the film is that none of those things that he had done were actually real. That they actually all sort of fell apart as he as he's actually has time to sit with them. And so here is – so early in the film, he's, he, has, he has nothing to do, so he just stays up all night watching TV. Um, and uh, he sees an infomercial for an adopted child in Africa kind of a thing, and he makes him cry. And so he ends up adopting this child and writing letters to him. And so the mo most of the rest of the film is narrated by him writing these letters to his six-year-old child in Africa that can't even speak English. So it's a nice little bit of humor in there. But at the end of the film, he says this in this letter to Ndugu, his adopted child. He says, I know we're all pretty small in the big scheme of things, and I suppose the most you can hope for is to make some kind of a difference. But what kind of a difference have I made? What in the world is better because of me? Relatively soon I will die. Maybe in 20 years, maybe tomorrow, it doesn't matter. Once I am dead, and everyone who knew me dies too, it will be as though I never existed. What difference has, that, has my life made to anyone? None that I can think of. None at all. Is that like the saddest thing ever? Yes, it is. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you that the, that's not quite the very end of the film. And there is, I, I will tell you, as a 22-year-old sitting at the beginning of my life and watching this story of a man at the end of his, I wept at the end of this film in the middle of a movie theater, unashamedly. 
because I like I didn't want for that to be my story. You know, I am sure that Warren Schmidt, when he was graduating from college, did not say, you know what, I just I want to just waste my life a little bit. Like I want to I want to get to the end of my life and look back and say, you know, didn't leave my mark. You know, no one wants that. And so how did how did he get there? You know, and and so that became this is why this movie is so important for me personally, is it was very formative. You know, Warren lives with me, um, and I think about him a lot. Um, but, but I think what's interesting is that for Warren, this midlife crisis moment, it didn't come in his midlife. It came at the end of his life. Um, and again, not, I mean, he's, he wasn't like in a hospital bed dying, right? But it was, it was very, he had less of his life ahead of him than he had behind him at this point. And he realized that the things that he had given his life to weren't things that lasted. Um, there's another, I want to do this real quick and we'll come back and talk about it because we are totally out of time. But John Mayer is a singer. In 2001, he wrote a song, or he released a song called Why Georgia? And it says this, I rent a room and I fill it with the spaces, uh, I fill the spaces with wood in places to make it feel like home. But all I feel is alone. It might be a quarter-life crisis or just the stirring in my soul. Either way, I wonder sometimes about the outcome of a still verdictless life. Am I living it right? So this is sort of the uh, extended adolescence, all those people that graduated from college and don't know what to do or dropped out of college because they don't know what to do. And they call it a quarter-life crisis, right? This, yeah. this John Mayer thing, it became like a, a bona fide thing, uh, especially, you know, in, in 2008 with the, with the collapse of the, the stock market again and all those people that graduated with hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loans and didn't have, you know, entry-level jobs waiting for them like they were told they would, those kinds of things. So the point of all of this is that what apocalyptic literature does, what apocalyptic moments do, is they, they peel back the veil of reality. They show us that the things that we think give our lives meaning don't give our lives meaning, particularly in the framework of gods and idols and all of that. They show us that the life that the American gods or that the biblical gods, whoever, whichever gods we're talking about, right, that the gods promise us isn't real. So the book of Revelation, the whole point of the book of Revelation is it's showing those early Christians that the gods of Rome can't actually give them life, that the gods of Rome, their way ends in death. That's why there's a lake of fire at the end and the beast and the false prophet and all of them get tossed in, right? Because that's where following Rome gets you. And that's why it ends after that with a glorious new Jerusalem that we're going to look at next week, because that's what following God gets you. And so all of these apocalyptic moments, whether they're cultural moments or whether they're personal moments, at the beginning of your life, and you're either having a quarter-life crisis, or if it's in the middle of your life, or if it's at the end of your life, they're always a chance to look for a new start. Do you even have to have a problem? Do you have to? No. Um, I think a lot of people end up having them. Because of the autopilot thing I talked about earlier, I think a lot of people just, they don't ever stop and think about their lives. They don't stop and think, where is this going? What kind of life am I building? They just kind of like do what everyone else does. You know what I mean? No? Oh, okay. Get up in the morning, eat breakfast, pack a lunch, go I mean, to work, and I mean, do it again I tomorrow. I what you're saying. What you're saying is understandable. Yeah. Not uh, most of my friends, a lot of the people that I know, um... They don't, like, if, if you ask them, like, what, where they want to be in 10 years, they're like, I don't know. They just don't know. They just don't think about it. And if you ask them why they chose the field they're in, 
Usually it's because it pays well. If you ask them what, you know, well, I mean, this particularly, I mean, I think inside the church, to a degree, you get people who are a little bit more forward-looking, but that, I mean, that's kind of woven into the DNA of the fact that we're anticipating the return of Jesus. But especially in the larger world, people just are following a script. And it's that, it's that you go to school, you graduate, you go to college, you start a family, which means get married and have kids, you work for however many years you have to work until you can retire, and you retire. And no, uh, at no point along the way do they intentionally stop themselves and say, why am I doing this? They mostly just do it until there's one of these crisis moments, which, again, is what the film about Schmidt does beautifully. Because you, you can tell when you're watching Warren, like, he never asked these questions. He's just he's, – and he's not a bad guy. Like, he's a, he's a likable guy. I mean, in the film, they do a great job with him. I mean, he's not, like, an angel, but he's – I mean, he seems like an all right guy, you know? He's just an average person, and they just – no, they just don't. They don't, I think, a lot of times. Um, so that that's why – that's why apocalypse moments are, are such, we could call them pregnant opportunities. They're pregnant with the possibility of new life. Because the world is falling apart and you need a new creation. You need something new out of it. And if you choose a sports car and a younger spouse, well, we know that those aren't any better either. Right? We know that, we know that there's nothing magical or, or life-giving about youth and fast cars any more than there is in you know, climbing the corporate ladder or, or whatever else. Right. And they Yes. 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 And that's the best outcome. Yes. 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 Death. Death is one of those many like personal apocalypse moments. You often find. That when 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 someone experiences the death of someone close to them, they all of a sudden go, "Oh my! Well, what about my life?" You know that that is a moment that naturally lends itself to reality check. So, okay, we're way over time. I super apologize. Um, the whole point the whole point of all of this is that apocalypse reveals how futile it is for us to try to control the world, right? We just can't. We can't. We think we can. Our false gods promise that we can. Um, but, well, we can't. And so that, that's what happens in Apocalypse. We realize that all the alliances that we made were, were not life-giving. That ultimately, unless we walk with God, there is, no, there is no life. There is no rescue. Our only hope is recreation. Our only hope is the God who brings life from death. So, for next week, it's our last week. Um... Homework, read, uh, read Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. This is Jesus is the new Joshua, which is a fun chapter. It talks about the new promised land and all that kind of stuff. Um, think about your own, if you've ever had your own sort of mini apocalypse moment. Um, if you ever had something like that, just for your own personal kind of working through this. Um, Jesus' closing words on the Sermon on the Mount. And then last, this is the one I left off. Read Psalm 22. Read all of Psalm 22. The opening verse is what Jesus quotes on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is how it opens. Um, but pay attention to where it ends. Pay attention to how it ends up. Because um, what I want to start out talking about next week is why Jesus quoted that psalm. Why did he quote the first stanza of it? What was he trying to say by doing that on the cross? Okay.
because, again, it wasn't an accident. So let's pray together real quick, and then, uh, again, I'm very sorry to kept you so late. Uh, God, thank you so much for tonight, for the opportunity we've had to really sit with the idea of the end of the world and what that means, either on the macro level or on the micro level. Uh, again, forgive us for all of the times we take the good things that you've given us and turn them into false gods. Uh, we see over and over and over in your word and in the world around us how those things end up in death, and yet we somehow still end up slipping back into choosing them. So we, we repent of that. We confess that. And we ask for you to again work a new work in us. Begin the, the work of recreation anew in us. Turn us back to you and redeem and restore us. Uh, thank you for being faithful to do that. Thank you for disciplining us as a father and not as a judge or as a tyrant. Um, but thank you that we can we can know that through your son you have made us uh, your children. We thank you for that. We thank you for everything we've seen in your scriptures tonight. And uh, bring us back on Sunday to worship together and again next week as we wrap up this class. Uh, we love you a lot, and we're so grateful for this chance we meet together. We offer all of these prayers in the name of your son, Jesus. Thank you, everyone.